We are in John chapter 7, so if you have a Bible with you, open up to there. If you don't, then you can just follow along as we go through this. John chapter 7 is an interesting chapter. There's three primary sections to it, but the really focused issue is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? There's three different groups that begin to discuss and debate this issue of who is Jesus. And it's an incredibly important question for every person to answer. Who is he? Was he just a backwoods itinerant Jewish rabbi in the first century? Or was he in fact the Son of God? sent from heaven to rescue us from our sin. And it's interesting, as we go through this chapter, you will see that different groups discuss it differently, have different issues with Jesus, but ultimately everyone has to answer that question. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived or ever will is going to have to address that question in their life. Who is Jesus? Ultimately, the Bible says, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, in an ultimate sense, everybody's going to find out who Jesus is. But it's so important that we, as human beings, in this life, on this side of death, answer that question correctly. I love that scene in the third Indiana Jones movie where they're in the cavern with the old uh, Knight Templar who's guarding the, the Holy Grail and they're all having to choose which cup to drink of and the old knight says, choose wisely. And it's true. We have to choose wisely with regards to this question. So, John chapter 7. The first section deals with Jesus and his siblings. And you might say to yourself, siblings? Well, I thought that the church teaches that uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin. Well, that's not how Jewish families work. Jewish families like to have lots of kids. And Jesus had several brothers and sisters. For those of you who who might not be aware of this, in Matthew chapter, uh, what is it, chapter, I think it's 13. Yes. Actually, there's a couple sections in chapter 12 that talks about this too. But in chapter 13, verse 55, the the locals are, are addressing who is Jesus. And they say to themselves, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? So Jesus had several brothers and sisters. And in John chapter 7, it says that it was about the time of the Jewish festival of tabernacles. We'll talk more in detail about that in a moment. But Jesus' brothers said to him in verse 3 of chapter 7 in John, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, 
Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, of course, Mary had an experience with Jesus that was quite unique. She was the one to whom the angel Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus Christ. She was the one that went into the temple and Anna, the prophetess, prophesied about what would happen with her and with Jesus. And the old man Simeon said that I can go now to my death because I have seen the Lord's salvation. So Mary had all these very unique experiences with Jesus. Of course, at the birth with the shepherds and later with the wise men coming to visit, she understood that Jesus was a special child. Now, whether or not she shared that with her other children, we don't really know. All we know for sure is it says in this section that his brothers did not believe in him. In other words, they did not understand that Jesus, their elder brother, was the Messiah, the Holy One of God. But they did want him to attract attention. And perhaps it's hard to read what exactly their motives were, but they wanted him to go up to the feast of tabernacles. And they wanted him to show himself, to demonstrate his power because he had been doing many miraculous things. And so they wanted him to go up. Maybe it was, hey, he's our older brother, and if he gets some some powerful attention there in Jerusalem at the feast, we will, by proxy, move into powerful position. Who knows for sure? We don't know because the Bible doesn't really say. All we know is that they did not believe in him. And that's oftentimes how it is in families with regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have to make a decision about Christ. Jesus, you know, you think of the Son of God coming, the Prince of Peace, and you think, okay, well, when he comes, he is the Prince of Peace. Won't he bring peace into every situation? And the fact of the matter is, No, he does not bring peace into every situation. He says, do you suppose that I have come to bring peace? I tell you, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, how many of you have experienced this? Some of you have. I know you have. As you've made a commitment to Christ, it has created a division, a separation between you and other members of your family, perhaps, who do not believe. Jesus said that would happen. And it occurred, in fact, in his own family. He had four brothers listed there in Mark, uh, or Matthew chapter 13. In Mark chapter 3, it says that his family actually believed him to be crazy. So they not only didn't believe that he was the Messiah, but they believed that their elder brother Jesus was insane. They came to try to take him away. Mark 3.21, read it. So there was division even within his own family about who he was and how he should demonstrate who he was. Now, ultimately, we know that at least two of his brothers, James, or two of his half-brothers, James and Jude, did become believers. They both wrote epistles. James was a leader in the early church. Now, the other two brothers we don't have reference to, so we can only assume that the rest of his family members after his resurrection became believers. 
But Jesus struggled with this in his own family, the division that determining who he was would create for his family. So family difficulties, families divisions with regards to who is Jesus. When you make a decision, it impacts the family. Now after that, Jesus told his brothers, you guys go ahead and go up to the festival. I'm not going right now. And after his brothers left, Jesus went up to the festival, but in secret. And about halfway through the festival, the festival was a seven-day process. It was a seven-day event. About halfway through the festival, it says that Jesus did go up to the temple courts and began to teach. And the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And so through this next section, it's going to be the crowds there in Jerusalem that are discussing and debating, who is Jesus? Where did he get this learning from? In, in, in Jewish culture, in rabbinical culture, students were under a rabbi. And there were 30 different rabbinical schools in or around Jerusalem at this time. And what would happen is students, disciples, would attach themselves to a rabbi. And they would follow the rabbi and the rabbi would teach them. Jesus had gone to none of these schools. And so they're amazed at his teaching, his knowledge of the Torah and of the Old Testament, his mastery over it. And yet, he had not been to any of these rabbinical schools. He was not attached to any specific rabbi. They begin to debate where he was from. Was he born in Galilee? The rabbi, or the, excuse me, the, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, but he comes from Galilee. Then they begin to debate, where is he going to? Because Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, where is he going to? They were confused about it and they began to discuss and debate the issue of who is this Jesus. To the point that some people began to ask whether or not, where is it here? Um, Verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we can not find him? Will he go out out to our people who are scattered among the Greeks and teach them? What did he mean when he says, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I go, you cannot come? So they begin to discuss and debate, who is Jesus? Some of them said he was a good man. Others said he's a deceiver and ought not to be listened to. And neither of those was correct. You know, C.S. Lewis said that Jesus Christ was either a liar a lunatic, or the Lord of all. He doesn't give us any options to say that he's a good man. The words that he speaks throughout the Bible proclaim that he is God incarnate. A good man would not say that because he would be a liar if he did. He could be crazy, But as you read through the New Testament, the Gospels specifically, you do not get the impression that these are the words of a crazy man, a lunatic. So, that leaves us with the option that he's the Lord of all, the Creator come into the flesh to live among us, to teach us about God, and to show us the pathway to salvation. It's interesting 
that in this group too, the, the group of the crowds, just as among his family, certain of them at least did become believers, so too in this crowd, some of them became believers. It says in verse 40 that some of the people said, surely this man's the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. And they believed. So there was debate and dissension and division among them, just as there was within his own family about who he was. Later, we'll read in the latter part of the chapter about the Jewish leaders discussing who Jesus was. In verse 45, the temple guards who had been sent out by the the chief priests to arrest Jesus came back to them, and the, the, the chief priest said, why didn't you bring him back? And the the temple guard said, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. You mean he's deceived you also? And the Pharisees retorted, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse upon them. So the religious leaders closed their hearts. They hardened their hearts to the possibility that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah. And Nicodemus, one of their number who we read about in John chapter 3, said to this group, does our law condemn a man without first even hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And then they they, uh, said to Nicodemus, sort of in a cynical, sarcastic way, are you from Galilee also? Look into it. You'll find that no prophet comes from Galilee. Which actually wasn't true. There was a prophet who came from Galilee, uh, the prophet Jonah. And as we've read a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the Old Testament's very clear that the Messiah will do a great amount of ministry in the region of Galilee. So these guys really weren't even informed. They were just hard of heart, unwilling to recognize that perhaps this rabbi from Nazareth was in fact the Son of God, the Messiah. And yet, out of their number two comes a believer, Nicodemus. And later we'll read about uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who was among their number. Two men who became believers and tended to the body of Jesus Christ upon his death. So out of every one of these groups, the family, the crowds, and the religious leaders, there's rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But there is a small number that accepts. And this is exactly how Jesus said it would be. And this is so important for each one of you to hear and to understand and to know. Jesus said, the road is broad and wide that leads to destruction and many there be that travel it. But the road to life is narrow and few there be that find that. So out of every crowd that has this debate, this discussion, who is Jesus, there's going to be a large portion of that group that rejects, that turns away, that says, this is not the Messiah. This is not the Son of God. I'm going to live my life my way. But there's going to always be within every group some who hear the truth and believe it. So who is Jesus then? This chapter and and a very, very powerful event within this chapter tells us exactly who Jesus is. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival. Now, this is again talking about the Jewish 
Feast of Tabernacles. And it was among the seven feasts that the Jews celebrated. It was in the fall of the year. And the Feast of Tabernacles was an agricultural feast. It's where they celebrated the fall harvest. It was a time of great rejoicing for the Jewish people. In fact, there was a rabbinical saying that unless you had seen the Jews celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, you did not know what rejoicing truly was. That's the kind of event it was. So it was agricultural, celebration of the the harvest. But it was also commemorative. It was very specifically given to have the Jews remember their experience, their nation's experience in the wilderness when they lived without homes. That's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. They would set up little booths, little tents that they would live in for this week. But it was also very powerfully prophetic, looking forward to the time of the Messiah, when the Messiah would provide for them and rule over them. And partly what happened during the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles uh, looked forward to that time in a very demonstrative way. What would happen would be that the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam and they would take a pitcher out from the Pool of Siloam. And there would be a procession from Siloam up to the Temple Mount to the altar where they would pour out the water from the Pool of Siloam into a basin. And then they would, at the same time, pour pour another pitcher of oil into that basin. And the oil and the water would commingle and ultimately would drain out and go down to the, the Kidron Brook. But each day, for the first six days, they would do this. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam and then they would bring the water up. They would pour in the water and pour in the oil. And that was symbolic of the fact that the Messiah would give to the nation the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I mentioned, time of great celebration, a large gathering of Jews here. Up on the Temple Mount at this time, there would gather ten, literally tens of thousands of people. For those of you who have been to the Temple Mount, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very, very large section of land. You can get a lot of people up there. When the temple was there, they would gather all around the temple as the procession would weave its way from Siloam up to the Temple Mount and to the bronze altar. So a huge collection of people. Then on the seventh day, on the seventh day, they would bring this water up from Siloam seven times and pour it into the basin. And on the seventh pour, there would be trumpets that would begin to blow and to announce, literally announce, the the coming of the Messiah that was prophetically to occur. So stop and imagine this scene, if you will, just for a moment. Tens of thousands of people surrounded, watching this water coming up for six days, from the Pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount. On the seventh day, seven times it occurs. Trumpets beginning to blow and the priests beginning to chant the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. And on Psalm 118, in the last three verses, it says this, 
Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So this is what is being said as this all comes to a climax and culminates in the trumpet blowing. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Tens of thousands of people focused on the pouring out of the water, the blowing of the trumpets, the proclaiming, the chanting of the Hallel Psalms. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And right at that moment, says here in verse 37 that Jesus stood up and with a very loud voice cried, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. For up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, this is where C.S. Lewis's statement is absolutely true. A person who in that setting, with that kind of a climactic event occurring, who shouts amongst tens of thousands of people that he is the one who can quench our thirst. He is the one in whom we must believe. He is the one whom will pour out the Holy Spirit. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. So who is Jesus? Well, he's the one to whom the thirsty must come. And thirst indicates a need, doesn't it? And the the issue of thirst can be multi-layered, really. I mean, in an ultimate sense, all of us have a thirst, a need for righteousness. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. There is no righteousness within us. We are all thirsty in need of righteousness. We're sinners who must have a drink given to us to quench that thirst. And the drink given to us is the righteousness of God in Christ. So we're all thirsty in that respect. We're also thirsty for a new way of living, a new manner of being. At the executive committee meeting on Wednesday night, John Cattles shared the devotion. And from that devotion, he he shared from N.T. Wright that when we receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into us and we are reborn into the image of God, we receive a new way of being human. I love that. Every one of us who has received Christ, who has been given the Holy Spirit, who has had that thirst quenched, our sin forgiven, righteousness bestowed upon us, has a new way of being human. All of the old things have passed away. You say to me, Greg, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know how difficult it is for me. And I would answer to that, you're right, I don't, but God does. And he has given you his spirit. And through his spirit, you can be a new kind of human being. All the struggles that you have, 
they may still remain. In fact, they will probably get worse. How does that sound for an enticement to become a Christian? But you will have a power, river of living water pouring out of you that Jesus will have given you that gives you the power to be a new kind of human, a new creature in Christ. So who is Jesus? He is the one to whom the thirsty come. He is the one upon whom we must believe. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father but through me. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. There's no other religious system, no other person that you can go to to have that thirst quenched. We must believe in Jesus Christ. That's what he said. Whoever believes in me. Belief, obviously, is more than just mental assent to doctrinal truth. Belief is a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ. A laying down, literally, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, of your life. He says, offer up your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service of worship. So he is the one upon whom we must believe. And he is the one that has the spirit to give that will actually create you as a new creature in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this. He says, there is no, there is there." for no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin of death. So, Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit that sets us free from the law of sin and death. Later, Paul writes, for those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. So Jesus is the one who gives us that new life, the Spirit that indwells us, that allows us to become a new kind of human being. No longer should our lives look like they used to look. We have power from within us, rivers of living water that flow out of us, a light that shines. And we'll talk about this in in next week's teaching because that was another aspect of of the Feast of Tabernacles. They would set lights all over the Temple Mount. You could literally see the Temple Mount from miles away at night because of all the lights they would set upon it. And in that setting, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Do you know who else he called the light of the world? You guys. That's why Christianity is so different from religion because it's all about a person, God in the flesh, who gives unto us the power to live a new life. It's not a religious set of codes or expectations. It's the law of the Spirit, Paul said, that 
sets us free from the law of sin and death. So, so who is Jesus? He's our Savior. He's our God. He's our empowerment. He's everything. Jesus is everything to us. That is who he is. And so this morning, if you have not received that new life, if you have not believed upon the one whom the Father sent, I exhort you, this side of heaven, to put your faith in him, to put your trust in him, to believe that he is exactly who he said he was. And I guarantee that you will experience a newness of life. All of the old things will have passed away. If you make that commitment to Christ, please share that with someone. Myself, a friend, family members. Let someone know that today was the day that that new life came into you and that the rivers of living water began to flow out from you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for how it teaches us who Jesus really is and the promise and the hope that we have in him. He is the one that we have come to because we thirsted and hungered for righteousness. He is the one upon whom we have believed and he is the one who has given us new life in Christ. Lord, I pray for each and every soul who is hearing my voice today that we would truly take a hold of that truth and that we would begin to be led by the Holy Spirit, demonstrating that we are, in fact, sons and daughters of God. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to conclude with hymn number 393, Spirit of the Living God. So let's all stand and we'll sing this a couple of times.